energy transition is complex and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. In 2022, we're closer than ever to a cleaner future, but how do we get there? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that navigates the path to net zero. If you're a leader, a decision maker, or someone who has a stake in the future of energy and natural resources, then this is the show for you. Join us right here for insights, bold forecasts, and new perspectives. You'll most likely have at least one piece of IKEA furniture in your home. The Swedish furniture manufacturer has almost monopolized the industry by building cheap, accessible products at a faster rate than anyone else. China is very much the IKEA of the energy transition. Off the back of a boom year, China's production of renewables and investment in green projects has created a major headache for the rest of the world. Countries who announced more ambitious 2030 emissions targets on the promise of local jobs and prosperity are being squeezed by record commodity and transportation costs, raw material supply constraints, and logistical bottlenecks. But it's not just these. To see the entire picture, we must look into China. In this episode of the Horizons podcast, we're exploring China's ever-changing role in the global energy transition. I'll be joined by our expert guest to analyze it all, and we'll get the final word from our chief analyst, Simon Flowers, at the end of the show. China's boom year has created challenges and opportunities for the rest of the world to compete in renewables, so let's dive into it. So with that, it's truly my pleasure to introduce two amazing guests who are going to help us understand how China's boom year is changing the course of the energy transition. Now, I'm especially delighted to be talking to both of them in February 2022, where the Winter Olympics in Beijing are in full swing and Chinese New Year is still going on. This topic could not be timelier. First up, joining me today is Andy Klump, the founder and CEO of Clean Energy Associates. He has over 20 years of high-tech and renewable energy sector experience, 18 of which are in solar PV. Before founding Clean Energy Associates in 2008, Andy was the VP of Business Development for Trina Solar Limited and has supported $500 million of debt and equity financing through IPO and post-public offerings. He has an MBA from Harvard Business School and a BA in economics from Northwestern University. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here, and uh, thanks once again for the invitation. I look forward to our discussion. Me too. So I'm a big fan of bottom line up front, sometimes called BLUF, and getting right into it. So what is one thing that you think everyone should know about China and its role in the energy transition? So I think well, one of the one of the clear takeaways I'd like every listener to have is that once again, China is absolutely a leader in the energy transition. Uh, and most folks would assume, okay, I'm referring to manufacturing uh, or the supply side, but it's actually not just that, and not only on the demand side, but also really from a technology point of view. And uh, this has certainly been very evident in the solar uh, energy industry, uh, where I've been working for the last uh, 16 years. But I think that same trend has also played out in wind and energy storage. And I think it's going to continue in other areas of energy transition, whether you're talking about green hydrogen or other aspects of, of the energy transition. So uh, once again, I started my career at working at Trina Solar. And uh, the, the analogy a lot of folks gave me was, well, this is like solar thermal or what many are known as hot water heaters. You know, China didn't become the world's largest manufacturer overnight. but They invested the time, the energy, the supply chain. And they got there and also grew the, the demand side as well as the technology side. So that's, I think, one, one of the key takeaways that hopefully folks can take. That's fascinating. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. All right. And next up, we have Alex Whitworth. Alex is responsible for overall power and renewables research strategy in Asia at Wood Mackenzie. 
He and his team developed these insightful and high-impact analysis and reports, and he is also the co-author of February's Horizons Report, which if you have not read it, you absolutely need to check it out. Alex has over 10 years' experience in the energy industry in China and Asia, including roles at McKinsey, GE, and IHS Market. His work includes provincial-level modeling of China's power, coal and gas markets, policy analysis, power, fuel price forecasting, power plant feasibility studies, and product strategy for power equipment, and more. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Liz. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I have the same question for you. What is one thing you think everyone should know about China and its role in the energy transition? Well, it's my view that uh, the energy transition as we see it today would not be it would not be happening without China. And so, uh, in a similar vein to what Andy's just said, uh, just you know, emphasizing the importance of China. And just to give an example on the cost of renewables. When I was at engineering school 20 years ago, I remember very clearly one of the professors was teaching us about solar power. Uh, at that time, it was more than 20 times more expensive than fossil fuel power. Um, he said it would never scale, it would never take off, but it was kind of interesting, kind of, you know. Um, and now, 20 years later, I mean, China has done so much, I think, to really push the technology to scale it. And now, you know, last year, we see China reducing the subsidies or removing subsidies so that solar power is kind of competing head-to-head -head with coal power. So that's really amazing, something that we've seen happen um, in our lifetimes. All right. So getting right into it, uh, the first question is, we've seen phenomenal power demand growth in 2021 in China, at a 10% increase that was twice the average rate compared to the preceding decade. Now, China's annual electricity output is twice that of the U.S. So how are they as a country coping with this? Alex, given what you just said, I'm going to kick this over to you first. Yeah, it's it's hard to get your head around how big the growth in China is for power because 10% growth in a small developing country is one thing, but 10% growth in the largest market in the world is completely different. Um, and I, I think the what's happening in China has really, you know, it's it's caused ripples throughout the energy supply chain. It's caused a huge change in the, the landscape of uh, renewables. You know, I think looking back of what's happened in the last, you know, decade or more, I remember uh, in the global financial crisis, uh, at that time, China was, uh, the power market was smaller than Europe, it was smaller than the US. Uh, and what's happened since then is that the Europe and US power markets have pretty much stood still. Europe's actually declined or it's shrunk a little bit, despite all the stimulus, despite everything that's happened. But in that same time, China's power market has grown 150%. So I think that's the kind of, that's why we see China is double the size of the US now, um, because it's seen this growth and um, I think it's just beginning. That scale is just phenomenal. What impact do you think that has for the rest of the world? Yeah, I, th I think, first of all, the there's a it's a, it's a two-way street. Like, why has China's power demand uh, increased so much and what impact does it have on the world? Firstly, it's uh, the impact of the rest of the world on China. Um, so last year we saw COVID, uh, we saw a lot of stimulus uh, going out and it turned out that a lot of that stimulus ended up as power demand in China. Uh, how did that happen? Um, people bought iPhones, they bought treadmills, they bought TVs, uh, all kinds of equipment. Um, and this kind of translated into you know over a trillion dollars worth of growth in China's exports. So this power demand, I mean, a, a large chunk of it is coming from, you know, the domestic market, which is also growing pretty strongly, but the export market as well last year is, was one of the things that pushed it up to that 10% level where it's been averaging a lot lower than that before. 
Uh, what does it mean for the future? I think for the rest of the world, as I said, the European and US and a lot of the developed markets are pretty stable, um, but the China power market is very, very dynamic. So there's a lot of growth, there's a lot of opportunity, there's a lot of investment, there's a lot of new technologies. Um, and I think this is what's kind of quite exciting uh, being in the China power market is we see that growth, we see it continuing, we see a lot of new products um, and we see a lot of investment and in, in manufacturing and kind of high-tech equipment uh, which is driving this pattern of growth. And for me, it's quite exciting to see that there's a lot of uh, energy uh, going into the power sector, into electrification, and of course, into renewables. Yeah. So speaking of renewables, last month on Horizons, we discussed that much of the economic impact of accelerating decarbonization tends to be front-loaded. And the productivity of clean energy sectors tends to be lower than that of traditional sectors. So a more rapid energy transition would have a greater negative impact on China's near-term economic growth. How does that play out in the long term? Well, well, it's true that the energy transition is very capital intensive. It's very expensive, trillions of dollars. Um, we've uh, calculated that in Asia Pacific, there'll be over a trillion dollars of investment in the next 10 years alone just for wind and solar and, and power generation. And I, I think this is also causing some challenges for traditional industries, uh, for companies. Some of uh, the grid operators are, are kind of struggling to keep up with investment and deal with intermittency. The power companies, some of their uh, conventional assets like coal plants, gas plants are struggling because renewables are taking their uh, business. But I think, you know, the, the, what's happened in China is that, um, you know, in the short term, there is some challenge. But I you know, really see that the Chinese policymakers, the companies see this as a big opportunity to really invest in the future. Um, it's quite hard going in the short term. Um, profits are not always as good as, let's say, in the oil and gas industry or some other industries. But at the same time, you know, people see a lot of hope and a lot of potential in the future. So, and I, and I think the, the government is also you know, creating this market, creating this opportunity for companies and people are really you know, investing their time, their careers and a, a lot of their uh, time into this as well. So I don't know if I'm too optimistic on this, Andy. You can you, you can like uh, put me right, but I, I really see a lot of potential here in the long term. No, I, there's absolutely a ton of opportunity in the long term, but I think even in the short term, there still is a, a really positive outlook. And I think if one looks at the industry from the context of where it used to be, and I remember uh, my early days at Trina Solar back in 2006 and seven and eight, and the market was highly dependent on European subsidies. And it was still a very, very niche market. I mean, literally the whole overall market's grown over 120X uh, from the time I entered the sector in, uh, you know, back in 2006. And, and the reality is those subsidies no longer exist. They gradually pulled away and there was a lot of shock and uh, it, it challenged within the system but the supply chain has reacted, and we've now seen this massive drop in overall cost. Uh, and I'm speaking specifically on the solar side. But look, in the short term, yes, we we have shifted to just natural energy demand that exists uh, on a pure play basis without subsidies. And so one of the exciting things, if you look at the 53 gigawatts that was in, in, roughly installed in China last year, over half of that was actually on the distributed generation side. So effectively, small-scale power plants that did not require large government intervention, large subsidies. Uh, these were driven just by organic demand. And so I think the challenge and the opportunity in the short term, yes, there is this you know, trouble with you know, project finance in some markets. But once again, it's really a, it's a, an opportunity for the overall 
financing market for you know, entrepreneurs and, and other business you know, stakeholders to figure out how do we deploy a large amount of renewables in this uh, project finance market. So there, there are definitely going to be some shifts, but I'm, I'm very, very optimistic on the long term. Uh, we see a lot of data and information about leading uh, oil and gas majors uh, who are shifting into the sector and other companies like Orsted, who's just made this rapid transition uh, to become you know, the leader in offshore wind. I, I think there's a lot of great examples. So uh, I, I'm very, very optimistic in the long term. And I think on the short term, we'll overcome these negative obstacles. So with that, I want to talk about wind a little bit more. China's position is the world's dominant supplier of solar modules looks pretty secure. They have over 70% of global production for solar. Now, Chinese manufacturers have not made such significant inroads with wind turbines. They still have 50% but it's not quite as much as with solar. What impact do you think this is going to have on the rest of the world? Andy, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. So look, I think it's very interesting. Wind and solar are very different industries and different supply bases uh, feed into those sectors. So to dissect the numbers a little bit more, uh, the number on solar of roughly 70% of global production of solar modules is accurate, but one actually has to look further upstream on the crystalline side of the value chain and you can even see a higher concentration uh, if you look all the way up to polysilicon, which is roughly at uh, 85 to 90%, and even wafering or ingoting, which is an important step, is 97% centralized in China. And I can comment on this a little bit later as we talk about how uh, supply chains are diversifying in, in different markets globally. But once again, solar has been much more of a, a commodity-driven business. And it's a very fragmented industry. You don't have many manufacturers that are, are dominating. While it's consolidated a little bit, it's very different on the wind side. Whereas you look at the wind turbine manufacturers, there's just a, a handful of large major international manufacturers who've had a much higher barrier to entry because of significant R&D spend. Uh, once again, on the solar side, much smaller R&D spend is required. And so that fragmentation theme has played out in solar, but it's not been on the wind side. So consequently, what you've seen is that most of the Chinese manufacturing, which is roughly 50% of wind turbines, is for domestic consumption. It's not really for the rest of the world. So, you know, the the, the last part of your question about what is the implication? Well, I, I think it just, it, it, it's a broader question about where should the rest of the world compete in each of these sectors? And I think one of the key themes that policymakers and uh, many business stakeholders need to think about is that business model innovation is many different facets. And the solar side drives a tremendous amount of job growth on the installation side and on the ancillary services related to the equipment. So the U.S. and other markets shouldn't necessarily think they need to ramp up their manufacturing to uh, the high double digit percentage, uh, like 50 percent like China. But it's about how do we capitalize on the low cost base of manufacturing and move to other sectors. Whereas I think on the wind side, uh, certainly there are opportunities, I think, for the Chinese manufacturers to expand globally, but they may not uh, may not necessarily have that same dominant share as they do on the solar side. But Alex, you may, uh, you may have a different point of view. Yeah, but I agree completely that wind and solar are very, very different animals. And so solar in China really developed on the export market, whereas wind um, was, you know, completely developed on the domestic market. And you know, I think it's also because of the, the the nature of the huge wind turbines, these hundred meter long uh, blades. Uh, it's very hard to send them around the world on a on a boat or anything like that. And the the gearbox is extremely heavy. The 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 
the turbines are, you know, extremely large piece of equipment, very kind of uh, materials intensive. Um, so, and, and also they, they have a lot more uh, individualization for different markets, different wind speeds and different wind patterns um, need different kinds of uh, machine. So the Chinese uh, kind of turbine manufacturers are producing quite different machines to the ones that are used in Europe. So as Andy said, it's not really so much of a commodity. Now, what we've seen happening in you know, the last 10 years is the whole global wind market is split into two. Uh, one half is in China. The other half is in the rest of the world. The part in China is dominated by the Chinese manufacturers. The part, the rest of the world is dominated by Vestas, by uh, Siemens and GE and the, these, these big uh, international players. Um, so there's always the question we get from clients is, you know, uh, is this going to be sustainable? Is it going to be the situa- for, forever, situation forever? Or um, are the Chinese manufacturers going to break out at some point um, and do better? And we have seen kind of signs of that in the last uh, couple of years. Um, you know, Goldwyn going to Brazil, some bids going from Chinese manufacturers going to Vietnam um, and some others. But but I think it's still quite a small share of the pie. And um, But I, I think, you know, I've been looking at the, the, the wind market in China. We're impressed every year by the incredible innovation, the advances made, the fall of costs of turbines by about 20% last year. That continues to amaze us uh, just how much the costs are going down and the, the technology is developing. That is absolutely fascinating. It's not even like apples and oranges. It's more like heirloom tomatoes that you grow locally and bananas, which are shipped green around the world and then propelled with gas to mature on demand. That's absolutely fascinating. So helicoptering up a little bit, what do each of you see as China's primary competitive advantage? Andy, I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this first. Sure. So I, I think the uh, one of the, the key questions, and I used to always get this uh, from my early days in the solar industry, that, oh, it's, it's a low cost of labor advantage. And, and that's not the answer at all. Uh, China's primary uh, competitive advantage is absolutely in the supply chain and technology. And I really kind of grouped and bundled those two advantages together. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, uh, you know, in my role formerly as vice president of business development at Trina Solar, I was part of the IPO deal team on the New York Stock Exchange back in 2006. And I saw many different facets of the capital markets, but I was really, my primary role was on the supply chain side. And so I, I helped uh, Trina establish a supplier uh, co-location program where different suppliers were invited to uh, set up their facilities right next to uh, Trina Solar at the time it was still uh, a, a mer- emerging player with less than a gigawatt of capacity. But by having different suppliers co-locate, effectively, you eliminated a significant amount of cost, uh, just the transportation cost alone. But once again, the, the cost of capital to transporting products you know, from one step to the other is just uh, it's significant when you look at other countries. And so what China has built is these amazing clusters around different core manufacturers. And they do this not just in solar, but also in wind, also in energy storage and many other facets. And as I, uh, I've now helped and worked with other companies that are expanding globally and looking at uh, different manufacturing facilities, it is absolutely not the same. And the US is a very large country as well, but it just does not mobilize as quickly to, uh, to get to that scale. And I think that that feeds into the technology side because the reality is that all the equipment manufacturers, which were initially in Europe, they came to China and they partnered with the Chinese manufacturers. So China really has the best in class technology really throughout the whole value chain. But many folks wanted to, to partner with Chinese companies and help them grow and expand. 
And so many have given a lot of the equipment advantage now to China and the, the technology is, uh, is absolutely cutting edge uh, here as well. Alex, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's, it, it, it is fascinating. And sometimes I also ask myself the same question. How did China uh, really get such a big competitive advantage in such a short time? Um, I think now we can see the economies of scale really give, in the domestic market, give China a huge advantage. But I mean, that, it didn't start that way, right? So, so I, I think the, you know, but the, the government at the start was um, providing, you know, high or trying to provide as high quality as possible uh, solar panels uh, for export. But I think the government uh, kind of management of the value chain, the setting up of industrial parks, and then putting all of the pieces together from logistics um, to low power prices to um, kind of getting the different companies to coordinate. And then also, I think what Andy mentioned is getting these international companies to come in and compete in the domestic market to really, um, in some ways, it's competing for market share, but in other ways, it's training up the workforce here. And so, you know, one statistic that um, I'm always amazed at is the, the cost of a, you know, experienced engineer in China is uh, less than 20% of what it would be in the States. Um, so you can get extremely good engineers um, for the power sector, for power equipment, uh, working at a fraction of the cost of what it costs in, in, uh, in other markets. Um, this is also, you know, a big benefit. So things are normalizing a little bit now, but um, I think that's kind of really, we see, you know, a lot of energy and then literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, even millions of people in China being trained up in these areas. There's also like a, a such a lot of government support um, in different areas so that the market really is, is there and people know it's there and they can really invest into it. My mind is just being blown. I'm over here like, where, where are we? I'm just listening. This is, this is fascinating. It is breaking down so many assumptions, I think, that people in general have about the Chinese economy. Absolutely. No, the, the point on the technology side, I think, is, is, is meaningful. And, and once again, a lot of folks think of China as a, being backwards on the, on the technology and you know, forwards and low cost. Uh, but I can assure you, it's it, the low, co low cost, you know, labor force isn't as low cost as you might think. We have a lot, we have about 85 folks in China. So I, I know very clearly that costs have gone up dramatically in the last uh, two decades I've been here. So looking to the energy transition, um, speaking of China's competitive advantage, what about these new technologies, things like battery storage, offshore wind, even things that are currently in the R&D stages? How do you think that's going to play out in terms of China's competitive advantages that you just talked about? Well, on the battery storage side, it's very clear uh, China already dominates in the sector, and we've seen a massive ramp up of capacity. Uh, but once again, if you think about uh, battery storage, you really just have to think about it as the gnat on the back of an elephant, right? And, and the electric vehicle market is really what drives this sector and the, the core chemistry, the core manufacturers like CATL uh, are just massive companies now. Uh, and so, you know, CATL, BYD is a handful of others, but that market is has grown incredibly quickly. And that uh, that is what's really driving for this large scale adoption of, uh, of energy storage is because costs have come down in a, in a very large uh, way. Alex, I'll turn over to you on the offshore wind side. So go right ahead. Yeah, um, I've also seen, um, you know, that the electric vehicle market is, is driving the battery storage market. Over 90% of the uh, batteries are going into vehicles. And, um, you know, it's amazing what China's done with electric vehicles in the last few years. I think last year, the share of electric vehicles um, was up, 
I think to 20, close to 20% or 15, uh, at least over 15% of the, the total of new vehicles, um, which is, I think, 4 million vehicles or something like that. So that's a huge number of vehicles, um, and it's giving scale to the battery storage manufacturers. And then, you know, the power sector is a, is a lot harder. I actually, it's quite interesting because China actually is investing more at the moment in pumped hydro storage to connect to the grid than it is in battery storage. But that's just an example of another technology that China is dominating in, hydropower, pumped hydro. Um, this is uh, a much more mature battery storage, uh, sorry, energy storage technology, um, which China is dominating in. And they have a, you know, a target for 120 gigawatts by 2030. 120 gigawatts is, is larger than the capacity of you know, most medium-sized countries. So that's the kind of scale that China's investing in energy storage. But you know, to hit their renewables targets, um, they've also you know, come out with a 1,200 gigawatt renewable target by 2030. They need this kind of energy storage and kind of including batteries, including pumped hydro, including other technologies. And so China's to reach those targets and probably to exceed them, China's doing all of the above and, and more. So there's a lot more technologies where, where those ones are, um, you know, also also falling behind. If I could add one more, uh, just on the green hydrogen sector, because uh, this is getting a lot of attention right now. We have a team that's involved in green hydrogen. And uh, once again, uh, for those not familiar, you know, green hydrogen will absolutely be produced locally in many different markets. But if you look at the core CapEx driver, which is electrolyzers, um, that's where I think there's a massive amount of scale that uh, is in the ramp up stage. I was just at an electrolyzer facility recently, and it reminded me of solar circa 2005 or six. So still very early stage. But as electrolyzers grow in scale, uh, I think costs are going to come down on the CapEx side. I think that uh, equipment will be sent to many different parts of the world. China, as many of you know, is really primarily using alkaline technologies, but there absolutely is going to be a shift towards PEM at some point, and a lot of the pen-based manufacturers are in different parts of the world. But I think there is absolutely a marriage about how to use the China supply chain advantage to lower cost. And once again, it's the same story of just how do you lower the upfront CapEx, you know, lower the project finance requirements, and that's what will allow the market to, to grow and scale. So speaking of cost, inflation is everywhere. There's been inflation of Literally everything I can think about these days, from going down to the grocery store to energy, renewables, fossil fuels, everything. How do you think this is going to impact renewables in general, especially with an eye towards China? Absolutely. There's an impact. Uh, it's not just in China, but also the rest of the world. And uh, we've seen this firsthand. Uh, if you look at some of the raw components, oh, once again, one of the core crystalline inputs is polysilicon. And we've seen pricing triple over the last year. That's part of the big portion of the reason that we've seen module prices rise anywhere from 15 to 25 percent. But uh, you know the impact of uh, you know greater demand uh, has has you know it shifted the the focus from uh, this ongoing cost reduction to now how do you adapt and reprice your projects? How do you refinance projects that were already penciled at uh, assumptions of ongoing price decline? So, so once again, I will definitely say on the China side, we've seen this massive expansion in the China in the solar market within China. Once again, if you look back uh, into 2017, back when uh, the market hit a peak of 53 gigawatts, it then slowed down. It had an impact from COVID in 2020, but last year it finally in 2021 it reached 53 gigawatts again, and uh, it was in this inflationary environment where the cost rose. But a lot of the, the, the end buyers end up accepting that price increase. So 
it was uh, counterintuitive that you'd see a larger market with a higher price, but the demand for renewables is so strong that it's really driven uh, a massive uh, you know, interest. So the inflationary pressures are very real, but uh, both China as well as other markets have been able to accept that for now. I think on a long-term basis, that trend will, will change, but I still think in 22 and to some extent in 23, we'll still see slightly higher pricing than what we had uh, anticipated. I have two questions left. One of these is how does or is China's dominance in manufacturing, we've learned a lot about what that actually means. How is that causing problems for the rest of the world or is it causing problems for the rest of the world? Andy, I'd like to start with you. Sure. So I, I think there's there's uh, there's two different ways to look at this. It's an opportunity or a threat. And so once <laughs> again, uh, we we talked about the manufacturing a dominance of China for particular for solar, but uh, as I as I alluded to before, is that there's also you know, there's a massive growth you know job growth trend that can happen for the installation side and engineering and other ancillary services. Uh, ourselves as a company with over 185 team members globally, you know we actually uh, if I look back five years ago, we just had a 10 or 12 person team in the U.S. and now we have 55. That most of those are engineers and uh, and technicians, and so. Uh, you know, the, there is a lot of job growth around uh, in our space around technical advisory work that can happen in downstream markets where uh, they, these markets are now enabled by having a low cost base of manufacturing. You know, on the flip side, the threat or the concern that some have is that, you know, there's with too much concentration, too much uh, risk around supply chain shocks or you know, large logistics uh, spikes. What does that mean for, uh, you know, a build out of manufacturing capacity? And one thing I've, I've seen is very clear. There's a, a very strong demand to have domestic manufacturing of various solar components, not just in the U.S., but also in other markets. So India is going through a massive rebirth of manufacturing right now. We've seen a number of new facilities. We actually have uh, 15 folks there now. That team was much smaller five years ago as well. But we have a lot of inspectors that are looking at uh, these new manufacturing facilities. So uh, I, I do see there being opportunities for other investors and other players who want to have local manufacturing. And if I had to make a comparison, I'd really kind of liken it to the, the automotive sector in the 1980s when a lot of the Japanese manufacturers uh, realized they, they need to set up manufacturing uh, in the U.S. to be close to the end market. And that's exactly what happened. So I, I do see uh, the very likely trend that more and more manufacturers, uh, some of which are Chinese, will move to the U.S. and produce locally. So I do see that uh, that trend playing out. Alex, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, it's it's part of what they call the great game of uh, you know you know competition. Um, I think you know in the past it was oil, it was uh, mining, it was uh, gas. I I'm really seeing this as a competition of uh, you know great powers um, to to develop technologies um, that will be the future of the energy industry. Um, so all of the you know uh, major countries want to have a piece of this kind of the future. You know, if you're investing billions or trillions of dollars in your energy infrastructure, you want to make sure as much of that is going to your domestic economy as possible and uh, creating local jobs. And of course, you know, equipment, as Andy said, is not the only part that um, is is up for play here. There's kind of operations and maintenance. There's construction. There's a lot of other services uh, that go into kind of rebuilding the, the power and renewable sector. Um, so, but, but I think the equipment, you know, is, is a big part. And in the power sector, we see most of power sectors around the world are really 
domestic focused. Um, a lot of them are dominated by domestic kind of diversified companies, uh, but it's the equipment. It's like what um, I used to work at General Electric, um, what General Electric and Siemens, Mitsubishi, these three kind of companies dominate the global gas turbine market. And um, I think, you know, we see something like that happening in the wind turbine market now, you know, in the battery storage, there's also kind of uh, more concentration and economies of scale. And we, you know, see that a lot of governments are now getting involved in the industry to support their champions, uh, to support and bring out more policies to really uh, make sure that they're kind of thinking about this strategically and not ceding, you know, too much of this um, economic benefit uh, to Chinese companies. But I think it's going to be a long and interesting competition in the next few decades. All right. Last question. I don't know if you guys have been following the Olympics closely or if any of the listeners have, but I got to know, how do you think the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing have been impacting either China's economy or their perception within the world economy? Alex, I'll let you come in first. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately for me uh, personally, because um, I, I like Beijing a lot and I would have loved to go to, to visit Beijing. And unfortunately, I can't visit Beijing uh, recently because, uh, you know, China is really uh, uh, wants to ensure that the Olympics go off smoothly, uh, make sure there's no outbreak of coronavirus. Um, and so they've really restricted the number of people traveling domestically, especially around Beijing. Um, so that's you know a personal impact. But I think in terms of the external image, um, I've really been enjoying the Olympics. And I think there's been a lot of attention on the Chinese athletes and also some the competition with Chinese athletes. I think it's, it's the, the best uh, medal count that China's got ever. You know, most Chinese people don't have that much opportunity to to do winter sports, uh, but it's kind of changed the, the image. And that's something that I've been seeing in China in the last uh, five years or so, is that more and more people are taking up hobbies, they're running marathons, they're going skiing, uh, they're doing all of these different kinds of activities. And I think that's, you know, a diversification of the kind of, um, it used to be just work, 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 but now um, people are doing all sorts of other things and have a lot of interest. So I think that's a positive thing. Well, I definitely comment from my personal experience. Uh, I, I had the good fortune to go to the 2008 uh, Summer Olympics, and it was a phenomenal experience. It was my first Olympics I ever went to, and it was uh, just incredible the uh, you know the international nature of the, the games and all the different uh, folks who were together. So once again, in today's uh, environment with uh, travel restrictions being quite severe, uh, it is uh, disheartening that I couldn't couldn't go this year with my family, but. I will say one of the things that's uh, that's interesting is that it's not necessarily getting there. It's the problem of quarantining after return. So everyone who is in the Olympics and is in China, they have to quarantine for three weeks before they go back to their hometown. That's part of the headache of the, of the process. But um, but once again, I think the Olympics bring bring attention to sports, and and I think China has placed a, a much higher emphasis on you know, on athletic achievement and and also just broader. Uh, emphasis on on physical health, and so I think that's been a big positive. But you know, I think there's also you know two sides of the Olympics. You know, as as a lot of folks know, and a lot of uh, the Winter Olympic activities, you know, they're at you know it's the question of what is the the impact on the environment, and I think that's one of the things that uh, I know China has tried to promote the the green games, but uh, Beijing is still a very dry environment, and so they've had to import a lot of water to create the snow, and so yes. there's not. Uh, there's not enough uh, just natural snow, and so that's just one of the the downsides. Uh, but it, it's just you know I think it, it's it's great to see. I know it's again that the 2021 Olymp uh, Summer Olympics in Japan were the first kind of Green Games, and I know the Winter Olympics 
and China have also been claimed to be green games. Uh, so, you know, I think there is still an attention to the importance of uh, combating climate change and, and the energy transition. So I think this is a theme that we'll see in all future Olympics going forward. So I think it's important to talk about and understand those impacts as well. Great and timely question, Liz. So thanks for bringing that up. Thank you both for a very insightful conversation today. Andy, first off, is there anyone you'd like to give a special thank you or shout out to today? Yes, I would absolutely like to give a special shout out to my uh, wife, Lindsay. Uh, we've, we're celebrating our 15th uh, wedding anniversary this year, and uh, she helps with a lot of things in my life, uh, but one of it is uh, taking care of our four daughters. Uh, so they're, uh, they're a handful, and I was away for four months last year traveling in the U.S., meeting with clients and team members, and it was a, a long time for her. So I just want to give a big shout out and say thank you to, to my wife, Lindsay. Oh, thank you, Lindsay. That's incredible. Uh, where can listeners learn more about the work you and your team are doing? Well, I always direct folks to our website, uh, CEA3.com, uh, but we are uh, also very active on LinkedIn. So uh, Clean Energy Associates uh, is present in 13 countries with over 185 uh, professionals. And so we're very active in the solar PV and energy storage industry and also expanding into green hydrogen and, uh, and EV charging. So very happy to, um, to connect with anyone who reaches out to me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. And again, thank you so much for your insights today. Thank you for having me. Alex, is there anyone you would like to give a thank you or shout out to today? Yeah, I'd like to also give a, a big thanks to my wife, Helen, and also a shout out to my son, Zane, and remind him to do his Chinese homework. <laughs> Spectacular. Uh, where can listeners learn more about the work you and your team are doing to deliver these amazing high-impact analyses and reports? Yeah, I'm also uh, active on LinkedIn, but I think the best place to go is to the Wood Mackenzie Horizons. Uh, it's it's available publicly, so I welcome anyone to go and look at the um, Horizons website and, and download the report. Thank you both for your time and the conversation today. I personally learned a lot and had some myths dispelled about what I thought I knew about China and its economy, and I'm sure our listeners did too. So thank you very much. Thanks so much. Excellent. Thanks for having us. past 12 months have challenged the status quo of falling renewables costs, just as greater investment in clean energy is underway. Now, China is cementing its supply chain and manufacturing dominance in these sectors with massive ongoing investment. China's solar and wind manufacturers are increasing their ability to compete globally as the pace of decarbonization accelerates. There is no doubt that Chinese renewable manufacturers are critical to both their own and the rest of the world's effort to reduce emissions, but that does not mean that others cannot compete. Global manufacturers are producing larger and more efficient units with lower lifetime costs and less outages compared to their Chinese rivals. So how does the rest of the world respond to the IKEA of the energy transition? By advancing technology, securing access to key resources, driving up efficiency, incentivizing investments through effective policy and governance, and of course, partnering with Chinese companies, opportunities abound. Thank you for joining us on the February edition of Horizons. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett. You can find the report and more information on the podcast at woodmac.com horizons. As always, we'll see you on the next episode in March. And now we'll leave you with the final word from our chief research analyst, Simon Flowers. Thanks, Liz. I'm Simon Flowers, Chief Analyst at Wood Mackenzie. 
At the end of each Horizons podcast, I like to give my final thoughts on this month's topics. So here they are. We all want to get the world onto a one and a half degree pathway. And so much that's happened over the last 12 months is helping us to get there. Net zero commitments and COP26 show that the world gets it. But there are going to be challenges. Proving that technologies like carbon capture and storage and hydrogen can be commercial and delivered at scale. The finance of $65 trillion is available and the transition will be a just one and the developed world supports the developing nations as they move towards net zero. And then there's access to the resources and manufacturing capability of the technologies. China has a head start on this and it's vital that the rest of the world moves quickly to make sure they participate in the growth and opportunities, the jobs, the technology development, and economic revival that the energy transition will bring. Thanks for listening to the February edition of Horizons. You can find the report and the podcast on our website at woodmac.com forward slash horizons and stream the show wherever you get your podcasts. Next month, we turn our attention to Africa and the economic impact of the energy transition on the continent. See you next time.